Let's turn this morning to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Continue to make our way through this great letter. Let's come today then to Romans chapter 6, the rest of the passage, verses 15 through 23. Do or will appreciate your prayers this week as we gather for the General Assembly. Dale will be there as well. Our family will leave after the service this morning and head on out to Alabama. have the privilege of serving for the first time this year on a committee of commissioners. And those are the elders that review the work of the committees and agencies of the PCA and then present that review to the General Assembly. So often a time of encouragement to see what God is doing. I have the privilege of reviewing the work of the Committee on Discipleship Ministries. So that work will begin Tuesday and then we go into the Assembly that evening. So prayers for safe travel and a productive week are much appreciated and we'll look forward to being back with you next Lord's Day evening. So now Romans chapter 6 and let's read verses 15 through 23. Listen as I read God's word. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, That though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we do again thank you for the gift of your holy word. I mean, thank you, as Wade prayed earlier, that you are our Father in heaven. We can call on you for teaching and instruction. We do thank you for the fathers that you've given us in this life who cared for us. We thank you for our fathers in the faith that handed on Christian truth for hundreds and thousands of years, preserved ultimately by your care and your providence and your spirit. But thank you for those who labored in the word and effectively ministered the gospel to us, like Paul did for Timothy, to be a father in the faith. We thank you for that. And we pray for those of us who are dads, you would help us to serve well, to love you, to love our families, to have the wisdom, the gentleness, and the character that you call on dads to have. 
Pray for those who perhaps have the desire to be a father and you've not granted that yet, that you would give comfort and that you would give grace. And then we even pray for those who perhaps are estranged from their fathers or their children, uh, don't communicate with them, that you'd bring healing, that you'd bring grace in those homes, that the triumph of reconciliation and of God's grace uh, would be seen in our families. So thank you so much that you love us, that you care for us, that you meet all of our needs, that you forgive us of our sins, and as we come now to your word, that you teach us, and in a moment as we come to the table, that you commune with us. We thank you for these things, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Victor Hugo's Les Miserables tells the story of the former convict Jean Valjean and the new life he receives by grace. And when the story opens, Valjean is receiving his parole after 20 years of hard labor. He received five years for stealing a loaf of bread and then 15 more for trying to escape. And the authorities, when they release him, Inspector Javert in particular, warn him if he does not obey the law, he will find himself right back in prison. And so Valjean goes out and he tries to find honest work and shelter, but he receives cruel treatment when people learn that he is a former convict. So employers fire him when they learn his status, or they want to pay him less wages because he's on parole. Everyone runs him off, except for the bishop, Muriel. When Valjean knocks on the bishop's door, the bishop greets him as my brother and offers him food and lodging for the night. And Valjean is astonished. He offers to pay for the hospitality, but the bishop refuses. And not only that, the bishop and his sister serve Valjean dinner using the only luxurious items they own. Six silver plates with utensils and two silver candlesticks. It's a great expression of grace and hospitality and love. No sooner have they gone to bed when Valjean develops a wicked plot. He slips through the house while everyone is asleep. He comes to the place where the silver plates are stored. And after looking at the bishop's sleeping face, he slips the silver into his bag and he escapes through the garden. And the next morning, the theft is discovered, and before he can escape town, Valjean is apprehended. They already have their eyes on him. So they seize him and search him, and they find the bishop's silver. They know who it belongs to, and they bring him back to the bishop's house. So the bishop can say, yes, that's my silver, put him in jail. But instead of identifying the silver, or let me put it this way, instead of exposing the thief, The bishop looks at Valjean and says, I gave you the candlesticks too. Why didn't you carry them away with your forks and spoons? In other words, instead of saying, yes, he's a thief, he says, no, I gave him the silver. I gave him the utensils. And Valjean, you forgot the greatest gift of all, the two silver candlesticks. Here, take those two. But right before Valjean leaves as a free man, the bishop leans in close and he says, Do not forget, never forget, that you have promised to use this money to become an honest man. 
the bishop has given the silver to Valjean as a free gift. He's forgiven him for his crimes against him. But the result of the free gift must be the willing transformation of Jean Valjean's entire life. And the rest of the book goes on to show just what kind of honest, gracious, kind, hardworking, and sacrificial man Valjean becomes. When we began to explore Romans 6 last week, we described it as a story of liberty. Paul tells this story. He, he writes this chapter against the backdrop of Israel's exodus from Egypt. And he tells our story, our story of salvation, as the story of a new exodus, of freedom from slavery. Believers, through baptism and union with Christ, we have been set free from slavery to sin. And we enjoy new life as God's new creation. We are his new humanity. And we're now journeying to the full realization of God's new creation. So how do we live in the meantime? How do we live now that we're freed from the condemning, sin-aggravating power of sin and the law? Well, Paul answers that question in today's passage. In the previous passage, what we looked at last week, Paul focused on our freedom from sin. In today's passage, He focuses on our service to God. Since believers have been set free from slavery to sin, they must now offer themselves as slaves to God. We must not fail to take sin seriously because we benefit from grace, but nor must we fail to utilize our new position in Christ as the basis for our obedience. And so for these reasons, let's go through this passage today. Let's look at the rest of this chapter and focus on our new life under grace. And the passage highlights three aspects of that new life. Now, again, I put these points, uh, the the main headings in the bulletin, if you'd like to take notes. They're a little wordier uh, than usual today, so they're especially given there for your help. But we first see, the first aspect Paul shows us of this new life is that we have a new master. And we offer ourselves to God in obedience. Today's passage, it begins with a question quite similar to the question that began last week's passage. It might have sounded similar to you when we read it. Last week we saw verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase. Today, verse 15 asks, what then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under grace. Excuse me, I must have typed that wrong. Shall we sin? Because we are not under the law, but under grace. And the two questions that they sound slightly different, but I really think at the end of the day that they're asking the same thing. How do Christians relate to sin now that they have experienced God's grace? Shall we continue to sin? And here Paul gives the same answer, by no means. And he then goes on in verse 16 to state, here's the big idea. Here's what controls the longer answer. This simple idea, verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? 
whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Here's the big idea. The one you obey is your master. If you offer yourself to sin, then you're a slave to sin. And that leads to death. If you offer yourself to God in obedience, then you are God's slave. And that leads to righteousness and life. Now, right here at the outset, let me say this, make sure this is clear. I think when Paul talks about offering ourselves to someone as their slave, he is talking about an overall pattern of life. I think that's pretty clear from the wide sweep of scripture. I, I don't think he's saying, okay, if you commit a sin, well, you're a slave to sin. But if you obey God, well, you're a slave to God, and back and forth you might go throughout life. No, he's saying your overall pattern of life, that reflects your status, whether you are a slave to sin or a slave to God. So in many ways, the passage reminds me of Psalm 1. We studied this last summer. That foundational psalm where the author puts before us, here's two ways to live. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That psalm serves as a powerful contrast, and we're given that imagery of a person walking or standing or sitting in the ways of wickedness versus one who delights themselves in the law of the Lord, day and night. You see how it's an overall pattern of life, and it reveals which path you have chosen, the path you walk reveals the path you have chosen and who your master is. So therefore, throughout this passage, all of these verses, Paul uses that imagery of slavery to ask us, who are you going to serve? Who is your master? And notice especially that phrase in verse 16, when you offer yourselves to someone. It may be unthinkable to us, but sometimes in the Roman world, people would sell themselves into slavery. Perhaps they had to pay off a debt, or maybe that was the only way to obtain a position they needed, or, or a secure sustenance for ongoing life. Sometimes people would voluntarily do that. And so Paul uses that language. He admonishes the Romans, you present yourselves to the Lord. Present yourselves as his servants. If you're free from this slavery, this slavery to sin, now you must serve the Lord. We have a new master. So secondly then, new life means we have a new status. We've been claimed by God in the gospel. Verses 17 to 18 read, But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Here Paul highlights the radical change, the radical shift that's happened when God freed you from sin and claimed you for himself. Paul first refers to our former status. He writes, you used to. To be slaves to sin. It reminds me of Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. 
But as verse 17 goes on to say, you have now come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. And Paul makes several points with his words. He chooses his words carefully here. He emphasizes a few things. First, he highlights a truth we've already emphasized throughout this passage. True obedience to God begins with the heart. He says, you have come to obey from the heart the pattern of teaching. And when Paul uses the language of heart, he just doesn't mean do what you feel like you want to do. But what he means is it begins in here internally. A renewal of the internal man, a renewal of your soul and spirit, a reorientation of your whole moral compass, life from the spirit that fundamentally changes who you are. On the inside, the prophet Ezekiel promised, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And elsewhere in Ezekiel says, then you will do the things I command. You see, God gives the law and he's wise. He knows what he's doing in giving us the law, but it comes to us from the outside. It doesn't have the power to change the heart. And after witnessing that for years and years and years, maybe the people started to get it. So God could then say, now I will show you the reign of the Spirit who renews you from the inside out so that you keep his commands. And by the way, all of that is in the background. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need that work of the Spirit. To bring you to life. That is the foundation for any obedience to God. The work of the Spirit to give us new hearts. To again utilize Ephesians 2. To make us alive with Christ. So it starts with the heart. Second, notice this. This has captured my attention for years. Paul uses the language of obedience to highlight the priority of faith. But not only the priority of faith but the necessity of resulting obedience. Let me explain what I mean. Again, verse 17. You have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching. Now, technically, what is the first step of salvation, at least from the human perspective? It's to believe from the heart. But Paul says you have obeyed from the heart. Why phrase it that way? To emphasize that Faith in Christ includes obedience to Christ. We respond to the gospel with the obedience of faith. That's a phrase Paul uses at the beginning and the end of Romans. Probably a bookending way of saying this is what this letter is all about. The obedience of faith. And I would define that as the obedience which is faith and The obedience that results from faith. When God encounters you in the gospel, step one is believe it. Obey by faith and you'll be justified. But then the necessary step two is faith leads to obedience. They all go together. The same union that brings righteousness also brings righteous living. That is what Romans in many ways is all about. So faith necessarily involves obedience. And then so lastly, notice how Paul describes the object of our faith and obedience. He says, you have come to obey 
the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Paul refers to a body of teaching, and he says it's claimed the allegiance of the believer. What is this body of teaching? He probably refers to a common body of truth, a common body of teaching that was shared by all Christians. One of Paul's purposes in Romans is to lay out this body of teaching, to explain to this church that he's never met, but he wants them to support him in gospel ministry, so he's got to earn their trust, he's got to make them know exactly what he believes, so he writes this letter of Romans and lays out, here is the body of teaching that claims our allegiance. Here are the essential elements of the gospel. Here is what the Christian faith is all about. Here is our point of contact with an unbelieving world. This is what will claim the allegiance of all believers. And he says it's taken root among you. So let me make a few applications before we come to the very last main idea. First, once again, we see this. We can't be casual about the Christian life. Christ commands our highest obedience that we would be intentional, that we would be thorough, that we would pursue Christ in wholehearted obedience, that we would always be seeking him through the word and seeing new things in the word and growing in our obedience to those things. And the flip side of that is if we're intentional about obedience, we cannot be apathetic about sin. It's a cruel master. If you've been set free from his domain, why would you ever go wandering near it again? Cruel master that we should avoid. Second, friends, take comfort in the fact that obedience comes from the heart by the Spirit. You will still sin. We're not making excuses for that, but that is the reality. The question, though, we should ask ourselves is, what is the fundamental desire of my heart? Which direction is the compass in your heart pointed? Do you want to love and please God? then that is a good sign. That's the sign you're on the right path. So even if there are stumbles or questions, that is the person through whom the Spirit produces what pleases God. And lastly, notice God calls us to obey the pattern of teaching. We obey God's gospel truth, not human traditions. So all Christians should obey the Bible. That's just a non-negotiable. We should all obey the Bible. But sometimes we will disagree among us on what obedience looks like. We will apply passages in different ways. And that is not to say that every difference is legitimate. But Paul will labor later in Romans to teach the Roman Christians, all right, friends, accept one another without quarreling over disputable matters. That part of Christian maturity and the fruit of the Spirit would be they would not judge one another. Why? Because to our own master, servants stand or fall. That is part of our new status as those who are claimed by the gospel. So lastly then, we have a new destination. We serve God on the path that leads to life. And no doubt you've noticed throughout this passage, Paul has been using the imagery of slavery 
And he says here in verse 19, look, I'm really just utilizing this image to make a point. I know this is a harsh picture, but it communicates a simple point. And if you want to get a window into maybe what Paul really thought at the end of the day about slavery, read his letter to Philemon, how he counsels Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother, the runaway slave, and maybe just go ahead and do a little bit more than I've asked you. Paul never tells us what it is, but most interpreters think he's saying, you should just go ahead and set Onesimus free. Paul is using the language here, though, in, in Romans, the language of slavery, which maybe makes us wonder why use such language. He's saying, I know it's a harsh picture, but I'm just trying to make a point. And here is that point in the second half of verse 19. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity... And to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Now that you have a new master, and now that you have a new status, that means that you're headed to a new destination. So walk that path with all your heart. Formerly you were in bondage, but what did that lead to? It led to ever-increasing wickedness. Now, offer yourselves that you are free. Offer yourselves to righteousness, to obedience. And that leads to holiness, a whole way of living that pleases God. And Paul traces out these two paths and their two destinations in the remaining verses. And we can highlight these quickly and simply. Verses 20 to 21, that's the path that leads to death. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Paul is saying, you know, on one level, everyone is a slave to something and everyone is free from something. So when you are a slave to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. And some people think that sounds great. But as Paul says, that way of life produces deeds that cause shame, that end in death. Who wants to live that way? And on the other hand, as verse 22 states, okay, now that you're free from sin, you are slaves to God. And the benefit you reap, it leads to holiness with the result of eternal life. And so Paul concludes by setting the two destinations side by side here in this often cited verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul in this passage admonishes us to obey and we should listen. But just as he concluded the previous passage, once again, he concludes everything with grace. When we were slaves to sin, we earned the death that came to us. That was the paycheck. That was the wages. But now that we are slaves to Christ, we are given the free gift of eternal life. By grace, we've been saved through faith to do those good works that God has prepared. And when John Valjean received new life, the bishop forgave him. The bishop let him go. He had a new life in front of him. 
And not only that, but the bishop gave him the resources he would need to live as a free man. Those candlesticks become a, become a kind of endowment. And he uses that capital to build businesses and become a very wealthy man. But he uses that wealth then to love and serve others. And Valjean, by the way, he didn't become perfect overnight. I'm not going to tell you the whole book. But right after he's set free by the bishop, he actually mistreats another person. But what's different this time is he grieves over the mistreatment. And he immediately tries to find the person he's mistreated in order to make it right. And as the story goes on, he becomes more gentle, more charitable, more sacrificial. He risks his own life and uses his power and his wealth to help those in need so that others might experience grace and freedom and life. And that is the freedom. That is the commission that we as the church of God have been given in Christ to be the people known by grace, known by holiness, known by obedience, that we have love for others, that we manifest kindness and compassion, that we're that new humanity, free from sin. And so showing the world that this is what humanity is supposed to look like. This is the way it was designed to work. And so that through our gifts, through your calling, through your jobs, we would go out and renew God's creation. That's the life, the new life that we've been given in Christ. So let's pray and give thanks.